0: But now, on Saturday morning here on RNZ National, just say fat. Not curvy or chubby or chunky or fluffy or more to love or big guy or full-figured or big-boned or queen-size or husky or obese or overweight. Just say fat. And that was the plea, the start of an open letter written back in 2016 on an anonymous blog called Your Fat Friend. The blogger turned out to be Aubrey Gordon who began writing about the social realities of life as a very fat person. Now, since that post went viral, she's gone on to write two books, What We Don't Talk About When You Talk About Fat, and You Just Need to Lose Weight, and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. She's also co-host of the uh, podcast Maintenance Phase, which takes a subversive, bit of a wry, sideways look at the wellness industry. Now, Aubrey is the subject of a documentary called Your Fat Friend. It's by filmmaker Janie Finlay, and it's screening online at the Dock Edge Virtual Cinema until the end of the month. I spoke with them both and started by asking Aubrey what it was like for her being the subject of a documentary, which took
1: six years to make. Very nervous making. That's a long time for somebody to follow you around with a camera and not really know what's going to come out the other side. But now that the film is uh, made and out and in the world, it feels like a really warm and Um, sort of tender portrait of those six years, absolutely. Yeah, six years. And it was a really
0: life-changing time over those six years for you. I guess, how did that manifest itself? Were there points where you thought, oh, I'm not sure I want a movie to come out about me, actually, right now?
1: Yeah, I think there would be... Something may be wrong with me if I didn't have that thought at some point right? <laughs> like uh, i I would uh, i I would think that that kind of um sort of uncertainty is just part of the process of making any sort of creative work at any point, right Um, I uh, mostly write books, and there's about a year between when you turn a book in and when it shows up on shelves, and that is a year of pure misgivings. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think it's just sort of part of the process. Um, But again, with the film out and as it is now, I'm so thrilled with how it's all turned out. And Jeannie, uh, you
0: are the filmmaker in question here. What was it about Aubrey that made you think, oh, I've got to make a movie about her?
2: Well, initially I wanted to uh, make a film about fatness. You know, it's a three-letter word, but it's a very potent word. Um, as an independent filmmaker, I have the luxury of being able to find a story that I really want to tell, finding the money, and then making the film in a way that I know can be compassionate. And I met a whole range of people. Um, initially I was gonna make an essay film, and then I knew that I was sort of kidding myself. My strengths as a filmmaker lie in telling one person's story to tell a much bigger story. And as soon as I met Aubrey, her writing's just so great. It blends the personal and the political. It's really well written. And I thought, this is really interesting. What does it mean to want to communicate an idea with the world? And how does that show up in your real life, in your everyday life? And how do you have the conversations with the people that are closest to you? And so I just sort of felt like there's a film. There's a film I really want to make. And
0: Bruce said yes. (laughs) It seems really extraordinary, perhaps, to say this, although at the same time not. But to be making a film with compassion, as you were saying, about fatness, about anti-fat bias, um, because so often that is not how fatness and fat people are met in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, as a filmmaker, I strongly believe in the idea that the film critic Roger Ebert put forward, that films can be an empathy machine. And, you know, the last film I made, I made during the making of Your Fat Friend was called Seahorse about Freddie McConnell, the trans guy, having a baby. And I saw the power of telling one person's story because it's like having a conversation with thousands of people across different countries. You know, my camera can be a loud hailer, so I can concentrate on small moments in the reality of a life um, to tell a a much bigger story.
1: I also think you know, the images that most of us are most accustomed to seeing of fat people are um, headless, faceless images of fat people milling around uh, while we hear a story about the quote-unquote obesity epidemic, right? And there's a tiny bit of research um, on sort of the effect of images like those. Um, What we know is that there is a straight line from seeing those images to increased implicit and explicit bias against fat people, and that people who are exposed to those images report greater personal dislike of fat individuals that they meet after seeing those images. Right. So we have become so sort of inured to the most stigmatizing possible portrayals of fat people Mm. that just actually following a fat person around and seeing their life without hearing them talk about absolutely everything they're doing to change their body or to apologize to people around them for their size. Um, seems really revolutionary. And that, to me, seems like a, a really sad state of affairs about our media landscape. Mm. And the film opens with
0: Just Say Fat, which was your first post on Your Fat Friend, kind of an open letter. What prompted you to write that and to specifically address a lot of the kind of the, the flowery language and the, the half-truths that, that sit around this?
1: Uh, I wrote the first post um, initially actually just as a letter to one person um, and I sent it to a friend of mine to make sure that I wasn't being a jerk basically (laughs) Uh, and he read it and said I think other people could take something from this too so I found a place that I could post it anonymously um, on the internet and it was addressed to a dear friend of mine who when I would talk about my experiences uh, as a fat person she would. Um, she was a thin person and would try to relate so hard that she would erase the differences, right? So I would say, uh, I had a really hard time going to the doctor's office today because the doctor refused to treat me and refused to make eye contact with me. And she would say, I'm also having a tough body image day. And I thought, well, this isn't really about how I see my body. It's about how other people treat my body. And I just wanted to bridge that gap with a good friend With some tenderness and some understanding because I wanted to stay connected to that person Um, and, you know, sort of help her understand where I was coming from. And I think one of the big um, ways that we sort of miss each other around fatness is assuming that when fat people describe ourselves as fat, that we mean unintelligent or unlovable or unworthy or any number of things so people who usually are not fat will shift on to other words um, to make it seem less harsh and what they're actually doing is revealing their own biases that they attach to the word fat i um did an interview at one point uh in the u.s with uh, an interviewer who opened the conversation with uh, imagine telling your friend uh that you're Canadian, and they say, no, you're not, you're smart. <laughs> right? Like That's a pretty revealing <laughs> set of assumptions. And we do that all the time with fatness. There is, um, It's rare that I say I'm fat without someone saying, no, you're not, you're beautiful, which uh, is a wild assumption mm. <laughs> to make that <laughs> things can't coexist. It, it, indeed. And i I'm interested about
0: where you think it comes from, that this is one of the biases that sort of still seems to be socially acceptable for many people to hold
1: and many people unthinkingly holding that. Uh, I think it's because we turn to thin people as experts on fat people's experience, right? If there is a news story about fat people, we don't actually hear from fat people about how they feel or what they need. We hear from thin people about why it's a good idea to keep stigmatizing fat people, right? Um, I also think it stems from public policy uh, until uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act in the United States. Uh, Quote-unquote obesity was considered a pre-existing condition, so you could not get health insurance if you were a fat person. Uh, New Zealand is a place that I would love to visit, but it gives me a great deal of pause because it's one of the only nations in the world that restricts immigration on the basis of BMI, right? So if I couldn't move there, it gives me pause to think about visiting, right? So I think it's sort of all around us. It's the air we breathe. uh, And there haven't been a lot of uh, opportunities for counter narratives because we still see fat people as unreliable narrators of our own experience.
0: The roots of the shaming and the
1: hand wringing that often goes
0: into discussions around fatness or fat people is kind of interesting when it is also something that is directly and quite explicitly targeted towards a large chunk of the population
1: yeah yes absolutely uh in uh the states in the UK in Ireland all of the places that I've been in the last month mm. um, <clears throat> fat people make up between Uh, half and three quarters of the population, right? So most of us uh, are uh, sort of part of this uh, group of folks who are uh, experiencing great deals of shame and discrimination, all kinds of things. Um, According to the National Institutes of Health in the United States, someone my size, I'm about 330 pounds, uh, has a 0.8% chance of attaining their BMI mandated weight in their lifetime. So if we can shift our perspective to understand that there is a 99.2% chance that fat people are not going to magically become thin people, right, Um, I think that gets us pretty far and really sort of shifts the frame that we're using to think more about What are the needs that folks have now? What are the healthcare treatments that folks need now, right? Um, What are the ways that we ought to be treating each other if our bodies are just our bodies, right? If we just are the size and shape that we are, what does that change about how we treat each other? That feels really important to me.
0: Uh, I looked up the stats for New Zealand um, Mm. and in the health survey 2020 to 21, uh, it says around one in three adults aged 15 years and over, which is interesting because- that's not where I would put the line for adult, anyway. Um, we're class- <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> um, but, you know, 15 years, so one in three of 15 years and over were classified as obese. That is up hmm. from 31.2% in the previous survey and a significant increase for women, up from 31.9 to 35.9. And of course, all of this relies on BMI. One of the things that you Uh, have also become very well known for, as well as your writing, is the Maintenance Phase podcast. Um, Perhaps you should just have a moment to to pause and to talk about BMI and briefly where it came from and, and how useful
1: it might be. Yes, absolutely. I'll start with the last question, which is not very. (laughs) So uh, the BMI was uh, invented by an astronomer and statistician from Belgium uh, in the 1700s who wanted to put Belgium on the map. Uh, Intellectually. And his way of doing that was by aiming toward what he considered to be an ideal, quote unquote, average man. Um, And one of the ways that he did that was by measuring people's bodies. The bodies that he measured were the bodies of French and Scottish military conscripts. from hundreds of years ago. And in the time that we have had the BMI, it has never been meaningfully adjusted for any communities of color. It has not been meaningfully adjusted for um, anyone but men. And it hasn't been meaningfully adjusted for anyone in the last, you know, 100 plus years. regardless um it essentially sort of wormed its way into our healthcare provision um by way of insurance companies uh, life insurance companies who were looking for ways to charge some policyholders more than others um and that was sort of its initial pathway uh into healthcare provision and actually the paper that sort of led to its acceptance in uh american healthcare for sure um was uh, essentially stated that there were three different methods. We could either do water displacement, use the BMI, or use skinfold calipers. And that paper concluded that the BMI was the least bad measure (laughs) and that it was accurate about 50% of the time. Again, that was a paper and a study that dramatically oversampled um, white people and men. Um, So for most of us, it's not a tool that was designed for us at all. But nonetheless, it is often a box that people
0: are put into, one way or the other, uh, it, it, often in an unquestioning fashion. And I guess, Jeannie, from your perspective, when you hear these kinds of things, these kinds of pieces of information about how fat people are, you know, routinely being subjected to something like the BMI, which seems to have a slightly sketchy relationship with a, you know, a scientific underpinning. And that Mm -hmm. often is the basis of how, for example, they get medical care or that is, uh, you know, how they are portrayed in the media. Um, What is your response as a filmmaker?
2: I mean, my response as a filmmaker to the faulty mechanism that is the BMI is to make a film, (laughs) essentially. Um, I could see that there was a difference between the, the way that people lived and wanted to express their lives and there was a difference in the stories that were being told in the media um and it seemed the reason why I wanted to make this film was um I think that there's a lot of faulty science and terrible stories that have been handed down and they shape human behavior um whether you're seeing a dodgy headline you know The idea of um, a diet is sort of, diets are faulty, but there's something intoxicating about the way that that people are brought together to bond. And the way that they bond (laughs) is about discussing how much they hate their bodies. You know, um, diet groups are a way that that people come together. And I always want to look afresh at things. And it seemed to me, what if bodies just are, what does it mean to extend compassion for all people and how can we examine the way that bias has influenced the way that we may treat people in our lives even if it's unconscious bias and you know i'm making my film is gentle and funny mm. but it's also rooted in reality and i want you know the the number one reason that children are bullied is because they're fat and I'm interested in the idea that when it comes to anti-fat bias, I think people think that there's a boogeyman out there who's being the terrible person. And actually, the person who's saying terrible things might be one of the people that's closest to you. We've done a lot of screenings. We've been touring the UK and having emotional um laughter-filled screenings, and also a lot of tears. And one of the things that's really moved me is parents who have stood up and said, I hope my children forgive me for the terrible things that I've said to them. Mm. Um, and I think that that is really um, important because we learn the stories of our bodies, our parents' need. For me, the thing that feels really compassionate and endearing in the film is Aubrey's relationship with her parents. And Pam in particular, Mm. uh, or his mum, is able to take the opportunity to say, hey, I don't think I got things right, Mm. and to progress a conversation. And that is one of the things about making a film. I think it's an opportunity to see someone's life from maybe a perspective that you may not have held before. Mm.
0: Yeah, Aubrey, I'd love to talk to you about this because there are some really... Really touching and really beautiful moments in the film, particularly with your mum and dad um and your mum reflecting as Jeannie was saying there on you know on whether on whether you would lose weight if you went to weight watchers and and how much of it was her responsibility. What was it like to watch that back, and what kinds of conversations have you had with your mum since
1: uh I think with both of my parents, with my mom and my dad, um, they have continued to become more and more full throated in their support of, uh, of fat people broadly. And my work in particular, uh, you know, I think, um, Those messages that parents get are also part of that sort of air we breathe and water we swim in, right? That um, in the US and the UK in particular, there is a particularly vicious history of children being removed from the home solely because their parents could not make them thin, not because they were being neglected, not because they were being hurt, but just because they were too fat and the state decided that that was enough of a reason to take a kid out of a home, right? Right. Um, so I don't want to, I think it's easy to feel frustrated, um, with, uh, you know, sort of parents who fall in line with these sort of like deeply anti-fat visions of, uh, what their kids ought to be and ought to look like. Um, and also those pressures don't come from nowhere, right? They come from pretty concrete policies. They come from, Healthcare providers, they come from, uh, I've been researching Jamie Oliver and just read a quote from him the other day, uh, telling a parent that uh, feeding her kids pizza was no different than a cigarette burn, right? Like Those are really strong, powerful, and damning messages to parents who are overwhelmingly just trying to do their best, right? And there's not really much of anybody saying, hey, it might be okay that your kid's a little fat, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, your kid might be just fine. It seems like they're really bright and really fun and really sweet and really charming. And that could be enough. Um, So that's what I feel like I would like to uh, aim toward. And uh, I feel like um, watching uh, my parents sort of perspective uh, shift on this has been hugely inspiring Mm. on that front.
0: Because of course that also speaks very much to the stigma that is attached to to fatness, not just the individual concern, but also how it also, you know, how it rubs off effectively, how it becomes part of, uh, you know, an an, in quotes issue or in quotes problem
1: for the wider family. Yes. Yes, And I would say um, there are profound impacts on fat kids of that anti-fat bias. There are also profound effects on kids who are not fat, They learn that it is okay to treat people differently based on their appearance, right? So it's not just an issue in families with fat parents or fat kids. It really is an issue in every family because all of us are hearing these messages, right? Um, And all of us are learning and deciding how to act based on the information that we receive, which is um, often really incomplete or flatly wrong um, about fatness and fat people.
2: I think it's worth saying as well, like you say in the film, Young people who go on diets, there's some research into this that young people who go on diets are 18 times more likely to
1: develop an eating disorder in, in later life. And the kids who are put on the greatest pressure to um, to go on diets are fat kids, right? Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. There is a direct risk here. And at the same time, our research into eating disorders cuts people off uh, with for anyone with a quote-unquote overweight or obese BMI. So we're actively not studying the people who are likeliest to develop eating disorders. And we're sort of setting this assumption um, that only thin people can have eating disorders because we're only studying thin people. I wonder if that might be
0: one of the biggest sort of takeaways from the film for a lot of people is that,
1: that people who are fat can have eating disorders. Yes, absolutely. Um, Can have eating disorders, uh, including binge eating disorder, but very frequently anorexia or bulimia or really, really troubling um, uh, eating disorders. I think the tricky thing is, um, you know, uh, diagnoses are developed by humans and humans bring our biases to everything we do um, until, I don't know, about a decade ago or so. In order to be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, you had to have missed a period, Now, if you never had a period to begin with, that automatically cuts you out, right? Of people who qualify for this diagnosis, regardless of your behaviors, regardless of anything else. And right now we have a similar sort of ceiling, which is you can only be diagnosed with a number of restrictive eating disorders if you have a BMI that's in the underweight category. So regardless of how much weight I drop, regardless of how troubling my behaviors are, I don't qualify for that diagnosis Um, and it's um, really important to talk about it and also really um, sometimes feels really lonely that people have not really thought about, hey, when you make a point to tell fat people what to eat at every turn over time, fat people stop eating. And over time we learn to eat alone or not at all, right? Like that there are effects of our behavior. And if we, lead by thinking with kindness and compassion and assuming that other people are experts in their own bodies that leads us to a really different place than we're in now mm. you talk a bit about your eating disorder in the film which
0: you know is I find it pretty confronting because it's clear how raw and how um, how difficult that is for you did you have any Any qualms about putting that out there into the open?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Every uh, moderate to high-profile fat person I know who has talked about their eating disorder has been met uniformly with ridicule. And I know that when this is released more widely, that's what's coming for me. Um, And people... I think lose their sense of empathy often gladly and proudly when they are talking about fat people. So yeah, I absolutely worry about that. And I worry about the response to the film leading to a relapse. If I'm totally honest, that's, that's pretty
0: significant.
1: Yeah. It feels that way to me.
0: How how, (laughs) do you, how, how are you dealing with that? How are you thinking about that?
1: Uh there's not a lot to do. Um, most, uh, eating disorder treatment centers that I've engaged with have done no training around weight stigma or anti-fat bias. Um, many of them will put, uh, fat folks who are, uh, already have restrictive eating disorders on limited calorie diets and weight loss plans. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I would love to say that I am like running toward excellent treatment, but that treatment for fat folks for the most part doesn't really exist. Um, So we have, you know, a huge number of people um, who are excellent candidates for eating disorders um, who are systematically cut off from treatment, again, because our research cuts out anyone who is quote unquote overweight or obese. And our treatment um, still focuses on and still assumes that the most important thing is for a fat person to become thin. I guess that in itself
0: is, it says a lot about, I suppose, the the medical system largely that you're in. And, and I guess the one that you've experienced in the United States, although, you know,
1: by, by no means is the United States on its own here. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say... It's worth noting that um, in the United States and in many countries with nationalized healthcare, doctor visits are about uh, a third to half the length um, for fat people that they are for thin people. Doctors are less likely to believe us when we tell them our symptoms, and they're more likely to tell us to go away and lose weight and come back when we're thinner, um, which irrespective is irrespective uh,
0: of what you've gone in. To, to see the doctor about, you know, you go in and say, I've got a migraine or, you know, my arm is sore or I've injured my leg.
1: And what is yeah. the response? The response is you just need to lose weight and you can come back when you've done that. Um, for many, many, many medical problems, doctors and nurses and healthcare providers of all stripes, go through an immense amount of technical training, and that technical training does not challenge their existing biases. And there's some evidence that going through that training actually increases their biases against fat people. So uh, uh, I am immensely grateful to the healthcare providers uh, that I have had that have done the job. Um, And there is a big issue here to address if most people are getting biased healthcare. I guess one thing that I am
0: interested in is you know, how does this work? Does the pendulum swing too far if, when we're looking at compassion here? Because is there a a situation where people are treated with dignity and also people are able to express concern for their health? Is there a point here Uh, where where you can, where those two things meet?
1: I think that, quite a bit of the concern for our health that gets expressed is not based on knowledge of our health status. It's based on assumptions that are based on our appearance, right? So most of the people in my life who've expressed quote unquote concern for my health don't actually know what diagnoses I have, don't actually know how I eat or how I move. And We've been taught that that's an acceptable way, essentially, to tell someone that they're fat, right? In absence of any meaningful health information, in the absence of uh, even sort of solid science, quite often folks are basing that in a series of assumptions. For example, the assumption that you reach a certain weight and become diabetic or you reach a certain weight and become hypertensive. And what we know is that's actually not true. Um, and that quite a few of those health links are more strongly correlated to experiencing discrimination on the basis of your size than they are to actually just having fat on your body.
0: And Jeannie, a final word to you. Uh, what do you hope people take away from the film? What would you, what would you see as a you know, an awesome outcome. Someone going in, sees the film and comes away with what in their mind that is different?
2: I want people to come see the film. It's a funny fi- like laugh with the film, but also to, to spend 96 minutes with Aubrey and her family in her experiences as a, as a fat person in the world and listen to her and to feel... Moved by her story, but also feel compassion for fat people in the world, whether that's people they encounter or the fat on their own bodies. I think we could all do with a bit more tenderness. And for me, there's no side limit on compassion. I want, I extend that compassion to every fat person in the world. Um, because I don't think there should ever be a limitation on compassion. So that's my that's my big takeaway. And to just get stop commenting on other people's bodies, because other people's bodies are none of our business.
0: That is filmmaker Jeannie Finlay. And also we were speaking there with writer and podcaster Aubrey Gordon. And if you want to watch your fat friend, you can find it streaming on the Dock Edge virtual cinema until the end of the month. So you're going to have to get in quick on that one. There is a link on our webpage to that, rnz.co.nz slash Saturday. Lots of you getting in touch, too, on uh, that conversation with Aubrey Gordon. This one says, multi-generational fat check here. My mum had me on diet pills aged 11 so I sped my way through high school, excelled academically and found acceptance through my spart brain. I have never been anything but fat. Another one saying, Morena, um, as the mother of a fat daughter, I'm worried the extra weight on her body was the sign of pain, unhappiness or deep anxiety. Maternal instinct interpreted the excess weight as a negative. Uh, a researcher, uh, this uh, person, Wynne, says, I'm also aware... That my cave day instincts see fatness as someone getting more food than their fair share. Uh, David's been in touch as well, listening to Aubrey Gordon this morning, saying as someone who comes from a family where obesity caused mature onset diabetes, uh, it is a factor and it has fought to keep uh, his weight down. The health aspects of being seen... Uh, or, or being big rather, seem to be uh, sidestepped by so many activists. Um, finally for now, this one uh, talking about BMI, we're talking about BMI there in that interview. Uh, harmful for anorexics too. My daughter, this person says, uh, she's not underweight. Uh, she says she's not underweight um, and obviously well because her BMI is in the range of normal. But this is while her hair's falling out. She's dizzy and anemic. She hasn't menstruated for months and wears a puffer jacket in mid-summer.